0: Just right that song is a just an awesome song isn't it it just uh, captures so much of what you want to say to to God for his great love for his wonders amazing should be an outline in your seat. if you want to make use of those they're there for you and everything will be up on the screen as well two weeks ago Claire and I went up into Northumberland to just a, a, a little place just outside of Rothbury and we went to visit a place called Rye Hill which is just a farm and a few cottages and some farm buildings and so on and the reason that we were there was because I'd managed to trace the fact that my great 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 grandmother a lady called Jane Snowden was born there in 1780. Now Claire hates it when I do this kind of thing but we we, we drove up I parked up and I went and knocked on the door of the farmhouse and she just says I'm not going up you, you, you're going to do that and I do this quite often. And I knocked on the door of the farmhouse and told them that I was doing some family history, that my ancestor, I thought, probably lived in their house and so on. And, and they were amazing. It turned out they were Christians. We knew some folks that they knew, and they invited us in for lunch, and we spent the rest of the afternoon. Claire was just kicking me under the table all the time. I can't believe you've done this to me. But they, but they were amazing. They were lovely folks. And this is a picture of their kitchen. And this is the room, I think, from all the research, based on what we know of the house at the time, where my four-times-great-grandmother was born in 1780. Now, I think that's pretty cool. Personally, you might not, but I think that's pretty cool. I- I've been doing my family history research for probably about 25 years now, um, since I first moved away back down to Hereford. Um, uh, yeah, about 25 years. And I have pretty much got back as far, about as far as I can with the records that exist. Most of my ancestors came from Northumberland, County durham and some from North Yorkshire. I do have a great-great-grandfather from Ireland, hence my mother's name was Murphy before she was married, so there's clues in that. And I do have two great-grandfathers from Scotland as well. Claire and I went up to Oban, um, up in the west of Scotland, about ten years ago, actually, now, and we discovered that this, this building here, was my three times great-grandfather's blacksmith shop. That's pretty cool too, I think. You can see it wasn't a great success as a business, but anyway, um, (laughs) not still going. The furthest I've managed to trace back on my dad's side is to my eleven times great grandfather, a man called Richard Knowles, who was born just outside of Thirsk in 1547. 1547. It's pretty cool. Now I've done my had my DNA done recently, not because I've done any crimes, just to make that clear. <laughs> but it said that I had. I was 67% Northern English and Scottish, uh, 15% Irish, 11% Swedish and Danish, 2% Norwegian, and 5% Southern English. The 11% Swedish bit probably explains my love of. Uh, Uh, meatballs and chips at the ikea cafe maybe but (laughs) tracing my ancestry absolutely fascinates me and i've done it for for some other folks as well and i could spend the next 30 minutes i could spend all day actually just boring you silly and martha's laughing and nodding yeah because i've probably done it with her i could spend forever just boring you silly with my family history but i want to talk instead about a man in the bible who it says has no ancestry it says this he was without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life well what a strange guy all my ancestors had pretty normal kind of English names uh, British names like John George Elizabeth Catherine that kind of thing but this guy that we're about to read about and look at this morning had a fantastic name he was called Melchizedek so anyone who's planning more children Joel and Emily maybe Melchizedek would be a great name for child number two just throw that out there and he's only mentioned he's only mentioned twice in the old testament firstly way back in the book of genesis right at the beginning of the bible and then he's referred to in psalm 110 which is actually a prophecy about the messiah who's going to come the king who's also going to be a priest and of course that messiah that king that priest was jesus but then he becomes the focus of our attention in the book of hebrews and the author of hebrews quotes from Genesis 14 and he quotes from Psalm 110 as he talks about this strange character called Melchizedek now we're working our way through the book of Hebrews uh, here at Regent. in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament of the Bible and today we're looking at chapter 7 verses 1 to 22 book of Hebrews was written sometime before 70 AD to Jews that had become Christians but they were under pressure from their non-Christian Jewish friends And family to turn their backs on Jesus and to go back to Judaism, to go back to the temple worship and to relying on the priest in in, in the temple and all that kind of stuff. And over and over again, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells his readers not to do that and how stupid it would be to do that. And that's why he starts talking about this guy, Melchizedek. He mentioned him twice in chapter six. And in fact, the very last verse that Joel uh, looked at us for last week mentioned him. And then when we get into chapter seven, it's all about Melchizedek. Or rather, actually, it's really all about Jesus. Because what the writer is doing is referring to Melchizedek to show that they shouldn't go back to their old life. They shouldn't go back to their old way of life in Judaism because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for them. And he uses Melchizedek to kind of teach that lesson. So who was this guy called Melchizedek? Well, we read about him in Genesis 14. And Abraham, who was a character in Genesis, he was the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham had defeated four regional warlords. The Bible calls them kings, but kind of think of them more like sort of regional warlords, really. And they had raided the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they would taken all the all the uh, people's uh, possessions, and they plundered it and taken it all away. And Abraham <laughs> took three hundred and eighteen of his chosen men, and he went after them, and he defeated them, and he recovered all the all the stuff that they'd stolen, all the plunder, and all the riches. And then on his way back, he met this guy called Melchizedek, and this is. All that it says about him. You don't read about him beforehand or after, just these two verses. This is all it says. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Literally nothing before that or after it we don't know anything else about him. all we do know is that he was King of Salem and Salem was what Jerusalem was called eventually it became known as Jerusalem but King of Salem and he's described here as priest of God most high and that is it until we get this little glimpse in Psalm 110 but then we get to the book of Hebrews so we're gonna read from Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 to 22 we're actually gonna just start a little bit back from that in chapter 6 verse 19 just to give us a little bit of a context if you've got a Bible handy And you want to turn with me, I encourage you to do that. Otherwise, you can just listen as I read the verses to you. So we're going to start in Hebrews 6, verse 19. And we're going to read down to verse 22 of chapter 7. So he says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their fellow Israelites, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to god and it was not without an oath others became priests without any oath but he became a priest with an oath when god said to him the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever because of this jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant so this passage is all about Jesus and Melchizedek being priests, but what is a priest? Well, a priest in the Bible is somebody who represents God to people and represents the people to God. That's what a priest does. They act as a kind of go-between, a spiritual go-between between God and people. And this passage starts by telling us that Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that slide up, please, Paul? Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, or we could say kind of in the style of or in the pattern of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness, then also King of Salem means king of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God. He remains a priest forever so melchizedek was a real man who was the king of salem in about 2100 bc salem became jerusalem and he also acted as a priest representing god to the people who lived around about salem around about jerusalem at that time representing the people to god and bringing god to those people in fact archaeologists have recently found what they believe was his special kind of temple complex In what is now the old city of David in Jerusalem and if you're interested in that I can send you a link to a YouTube clip Paul sent me that just this week fascinating and in these verses Melchizedek is compared or likened to Jesus the Son of God who is now our great high priest Jesus is now in heaven representing us representing God to us and representing us before God if we put our faith and trust in him (coughs) So the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who were being tempted to go back to their old lives in Judaism. And at the center of Judaism was the temple there in Jerusalem with its priests and its high priest who oversaw all the sacrifices and the offerings as part of the people's worship of God. And what the writer is trying to make is real as... His readers realize is that that whole system of worship has been ended by god it's finished it's done with the temple is finished with the, the veil of the temple as joel was saying last week was torn in two saying that we can now just boldly go into god's presence we don't need a temple to do it we can do it anywhere and at any time and all because of what jesus did on the cross when he took the punishment for our sins so the writer is saying look don't go back to judaism Don't go back to your old way of life. Don't go back to your old way of living because God has brought that whole system to an end. He's replaced it with Jesus. Jesus is all you need. Instead of the priests in Jerusalem offering sacrifices in the temple to temporarily and ceremonially deal with people's sins, Jesus has given his own life on the cross once for all time, never to need to be repeated again for all of our sins forever. And Jesus was not only the substitute sacrifice for our sins, He's also then gone on to become our great high priest. He's not just the sacrifice, he's the actual priest as well. Because he's gone into God's presence in heaven and he's there right now representing us. He's there as our advocate in heaven before God. It's because Jesus died in our place as that perfect substitute sacrifice and took the punishment for all of the wrong things that you've done and that I've done that he can then represent us in God's holy presence. And he's able to represent us because even though he was God, he became fully human when he became a human being 2,000 years ago. So he understands what it's like to be human. He understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he's able to represent God to us because he's God, but he's able to represent us to God because he's human, fully human. And so if we put our faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done in dying for us in our place, then we can approach God now freely without any fear. At any time you want, because our sins are all gone. When we trust in Jesus, he forgives all our sins, past, present, and future. That's fantastic, isn't it? Even the sins that I've yet to commit, God has already forgiven them because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus. And he makes us right with God, and he gives us an eternal, wonderful relationship with him. And even though we still sin, and even though we still let God down, because Jesus is there in heaven right now as our great high priest, representing us before God, We can have this ongoing amazing relationship with God as our father for all of eternity What the Bible calls eternal life real life is knowing God according to Jesus so the writer of Hebrews is saying look why on earth would you go back to Judaism why on earth would you go back to that old system of human priests in the temple doing what Jesus now does doing what Jesus couldn't or, or what they were doing Jesus superseded and, and kind of replaced because Jesus did what they could never do. And to make his point and show that Jesus is our great high priest and is superior to what he's replaced, the old Jewish priesthood, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to Melchizedek. To be a priest in Israel, you had to belong to the tribe of Levi. The 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob who became Israel, 12 tribes, and one of them was the tribe of Levi. You had to belong to that tribe to be a priest. Whereas Jesus, from a human point, he came from the tribe of Judah, which was the royal tribe. So he wasn't qualified under the Jewish law to be a priest. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was appointed as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Or you could say in the, in the kind of style or in the pattern of Melchizedek. So what on earth does that mean? What is that all about? Well, Melchizedek was a priest way before the Jewish law and the priesthood and the temple came into being, about 600 years beforehand, in fact. The, the system of priests and system of temple worship was introduced by God through what the Bible calls the law of Moses, which was this whole package of rules and regulations. It began with the 10 commandments and then all the rest of the law that he gave to God for the people of Israel to live by way back in about 1444 BC. And the point is that Jesus' priesthood Was superior to the Jewish priesthood the Jewish priesthood was inferior to the way in which Melchizedek was a priest because Melchizedek was a priest according to Genesis 600 years before the priesthood began when the law of Moses was given so Jesus because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek his priesthood is superior to the priesthood there in Jerusalem because he's a priest like Melchizedek and Melchizedek superseded them by 600 years Levi, who was Abraham's great-grandson, was the head of the Jewish tribe that the Jewish priests had to descend from, according to the law of Moses, this package of rules and regulations from God. But Levi wasn't even born when Abraham offered these tithes. He offered a tenth of all the plunder that he recovered and he gave it to Melchizedek as an offering to give to God. Levi wasn't even born then. Speaking in, in, in verse four about Melchizedek, we read these words, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person, as Abraham, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, he's referring to the, the priest in the temple then, but on the other case, by him who is declared to be living, he's referring to Melchizedek. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, Because when Melchizedek met Abraham Levi was still in the body of his ancestor so in other words because Levi wasn't even born when his great-granddad offered his tithes to God through Melchizedek it's as if Levi himself the ancestor of all the Jewish priests and in fact all the Jewish priests in total because they all descended from Levi it's as if they were offering their tithes to Melchizedek because they because Levi was still in the body of Abraham and so he was therefore demonstrating that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the priesthood that then descended from Levi. All of those priests descended from Levi, and all of those priests were in Levi's body, and, all of the, and, and Levi himself was still yet to be born. He was a descendant of Abraham, and because Abraham offered a sacrifice or, or offered the tithe to Melchizedek, he's demonstrating the argument his, that, the, the, that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the priesthood that came from Levi. And as we just read, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. He was this guy that all the Jews and, 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 and these early Christians who this letter was written to, this book was written to, they would have revered Abraham massively. He was their kind of hero. He was their great ancestor. Just like I can trace my ancestry back, every Jew would be able to trace their ancestry back to Abraham. But the writer here says, look, Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek as being superior to him. He offered his tithes to God through him and was in turn blessed by him. Abraham was the lesser, but he was blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Jewish priesthood, and the writer is saying that Jesus is a priest in that order, in that style, in that pattern. He's a priest like Melchizedek, or rather Melchizedek is a priest like Jesus. And that means that Jesus is infinitely greater, infinitely superior to the priest of Judaism. So why on earth would the people that this book was written for want to go back to Judaism? They were going to go back to a massively inferior kind of set of uh, principles compared to jesus melchizedek didn't become a priest because he was part of the tribe of levi he existed before levi was even born and verse verse three tells us that he had no parents or genealogy he had no beginning of days or end of life now it doesn't mean that in a literal sense okay of course he had parents of course he was born and of course he died just like every other human being what the writer is saying is that When the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis, which contains this very brief account of Melchizedek, just two verses, he deliberately chose not to say anything about his life before he met Abraham or his life after he met Abraham, so that he would be a picture of Jesus. He would point forward to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit It inspired Moses to write these words in Genesis. He also knew that he was going to inspire the writer of Hebrews to write Hebrews chapter 7. So he deliberately chose to only give Moses those two verses to write. Whether Moses had any idea what he was doing, we don't know. But the Holy Spirit deliberately chose just to put those two verses in to make this point a thousand or so years later when the book of Hebrews was written. Everything in the Bible joins up. And as you read about Melchizedek in Genesis, it's as if he always existed and continues to exist, because you don't read anything about him beforehand or afterwards. That's how it reads. It reads as though he was always a priest and just continued to be a priest forever. And that's because the Holy Spirit deliberately chose to say nothing about his parents or his birth or his death so that he would be a picture of Jesus 2,000 years later. Melchizedek wasn't a priest based on his human ancestry we deliberately know nothing about his family ancestry and genealogy in order to make that point so Melchizedek wasn't a priest because of who he descended from that's why the writer deliberately doesn't tell you who his parents are who are and the point the writer is making is that Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus because Jesus is eternal Jesus didn't rely on his human ancestry to be our great high priest because Jesus came from the tribe of Judah and when you read the account of Melchizedek he seems to have just always existed doesn't he He's just there he just is even though he would have been born and would have died but it seems the way it's written is that he's always existed because there's no record of his ancestry or his origins recorded now of course he hadn't always existed he did have parents he was born but it's written that way so that he's a picture of Jesus but Jesus was eternal He was God the Son who had always existed and yet chose two thousand years ago to become a human being, to die on the cross, so that he could become our great high priest. The only qualification to be a priest in in Judaism in Jerusalem, which was which family you belonged to. If you were from the tribe of Levi, you were good, you could be a priest. If you weren't, you couldn't be a priest. But Jesus didn't inherit his role as our great high priest like the Jewish priest did in Jerusalem because he was from the Jewish tribe of Judah. So Jesus was specifically appointed by God the Father to be our great high priest. He didn't rely on his ancestry just like Melchizedek didn't rely on his ancestry. Verse 20 says this, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath but he, that's Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Jewish priests were appointed simply because of their ancestry, but Jesus was appointed by God the Father with an oath, a kind of divine declaration, if you like. So Jesus' priesthood was infinitely superior to the priests in Jerusalem because he was directly appointed by God. They weren't They just became priests because of who their dad was and grandfather and great-grandfather and so on. It was their ancestry that determined whether they were priests. Jesus didn't become a a, a priest because of his ancestry. Jesus became a priest because he was divinely appointed by his father. Verse 20 says this, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he, that's Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind so Jesus priesthood was infinitely superior to the priests in Jerusalem because he was directly appointed by God so why on earth again with the people that this book was written for why on earth would they want to go back to Judaism back to the temple worship back to this inferior priesthood why would they want to put their trust in human priests who were only priests because of their family that they belonged to they hadn't been directly appointed by God Apart from the fact that Jesus was eternal, the reason that God could appoint him as our great high priest to represent us before God so that we could have this eternal relationship with him was because Jesus had what the writer calls an indestructible life. In verse 16, he says that Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. When you read the account of Melchizedek, it reads as though he never died. Because his death is deliberately not mentioned to make this point even though of course he would have died but Jesus life is truly and genuinely indestructible he died on the cross yes and he died there to take the punishment for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of these first century Jewish Christians for who this book was written but then on the third day Jesus rose again from the dead and that proved that he was who he said he was because God cannot die and Jesus was and is the Son of God So Jesus was appointed as our great high priest because he had an indestructible life. Jesus was appointed as our great high priest because of his indestructible life. The Jewish priests all died. Then they had to be replaced by another priest. But Jesus lives forever. And he will continue to be our high priest, representing us before God the Father in heaven forever. And just like Melchizedek seemed to live forever, because there's no mention deliberately of his death or the end of his life, so Jesus does live forever in the style of Melchizedek. In verse 18, the writer, speaking about the ending of the Jewish law with its priesthood and its temple worship, says this, The former regulation is set aside... In other words, all of that temple worship stuff, it's all set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We can draw near to God through Jesus. Through Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven, we can be made right with God, we can have this amazing eternal relationship with him. So why would these first century Jewish Christians want to go back to that old system, the old Jewish law, with its priests and its temple worship, which couldn't do that for them, it couldn't achieve that for them. And in verse 22 we read, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Because Jesus was appointed as our great high priest by this divine declaration from God, which guarantees then our destiny. The, the old system of worship, what the Bible calls the old covenant, the old agreement between God and the nation of Israel, that has been done away with when Jesus died on the cross. And now there's a new agreement, a new covenant. The new covenant is which is between God and his people, between those who tru- sorry, between God and those who trust in Jesus. It's the new covenant. It's a better covenant, a greater covenant. In fact, it's a vastly superior covenant. So Jesus is a greater priest of a greater covenant, the new covenant. And at the heart of the new covenant, this new agreement is the fact that we can have a relationship with God, not based on what we do or how good we are, but based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus took our place as that substitute sacrifice there on the cross and dealt with all of our sins, all our failures, all our screw ups, all our mess ups. Because he did that, we can have our sins forgiven. We can be made right with God, and we can have this eternal relationship with God. So Jesus is a greater priest of a greater covenant, a better priest of a better covenant. And just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham, so Jesus blesses us today. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he was king of Salem, which means king of peace. Salem means peace. And Jesus is, of course, the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek, again, was a kind of pattern, a type, a forerunner, a picture pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the true king of righteousness and peace. And he is the one who gives us his righteousness, gives us his perfection when we put our faith and trust in him. And that means, therefore, that we can have peace with God. Jesus is the true king of peace, the true king of righteousness. He blesses us today with righteousness and peace when we trust in him. If you can't get peace in this life, put your faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus will bring you the peace that everybody is searching for in this world. So again, why on earth would these first century Jewish Christians want to go back after having trusted in Jesus, after having professed their faith in Jesus, after getting baptized and joining the the, the church, why would they want to go back to Judaism why would they want to go back to the old priesthood the old temple system it makes no sense does it now you might understandably be thinking this morning well that's all very well I think I just about get what you're on about with Melchizedek I think they just about get it maybe you don't and I totally do get why these why it would be crazy for these first century Christians to go back to Judaism that doesn't make any sense but I'm not a first century Jewish Christian I'm not being tempted to go back to Judaism. So what has any of this got to do with you and me this morning, 2,000 years later in Newcastle? It's a really good question. What has this got to do with us today? Well, this passage teaches us a whole lot about Jesus and the nature of his life and his death and what he's doing for us right now as our great high priest. So it's important to understand all that. This is packed full of loads of great stuff about Jesus. And anything that makes much of Jesus and increases our love for him and our worship of him and helps us to worship him uh, more knowingly and, and in a better, richer way is always going to be a good thing. So it's always good to understand this kind of stuff. But you're right in that it's highly unlikely that any of us here this morning are being tempted to go back to Judaism. Maybe there is people here like that, but it's probably highly unlikely that any of us are in that situation this morning. But it is highly likely that we are being tempted to do our own equivalent of that. Once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, whether that was 50 years ago or five years ago or five months ago, we face the ongoing temptation to quit trusting in Jesus and go back to what we used to trust in, to go back to how we used to live, to our old way of living. We face that ongoing temptation to put our trust in what we used to trust in or to put our trust in what our non-Christian friends and family put their trust in. It might be this morning that you're really under pressure at the moment to kind of abandon what you've professed your faith in Jesus. You're under pressure to turn your back on that and to go back to put your faith and trust and live for what your non-Christian friends and family do. What they're trusting in and what they're living for. And if that's you, can I encourage you this morning to stand firm, to persevere, to keep going. This whole book of Hebrews is all about this. Persevering till the end, keeping on going. Don't give up on your first profession of faith. Keep going, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't go back to the stuff that you used to believe in. Because only Jesus can truly deliver what you need in life. Only Jesus can truly make you right with God. Only Jesus can represent you before God. No one and nothing else can deliver that. Trusting in Jesus brings us righteousness and peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And if you're feeling tempted to turn away from Jesus, and we're all, all the time, tempted to turn away from Jesus, and to look to other people and other things to give us that security and that significance and that acceptance that we all crave for, then don't fall for the lie. Because only Jesus can give you security, significance, and acceptance. Only Jesus can give us the righteousness and the, 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 the peace before God that we need. Only Jesus can do that. Nothing else, no matter what else it offers, no matter how tempting it might be, no matter how much easier it might be to live that way, nothing else can deliver what Jesus can deliver. Nobody else can do that, and nothing else can do that. No possessions we might want to own, no status in life, no, accept, no relationships, none of those things can deliver what Jesus can deliver. Jesus is infinitely greater. He is infinitely superior to anything and anyone that this world can offer you. It might be that you're you're tempted to return to religion. In other words, trying to do certain things to please God. Even as followers of Jesus, we can become incredibly religious about stuff. By which I mean we can kind of make all kinds of rules and regulations up for how we should live. Things that aren't in the Bible. Things that we add to the Bible. That's what these folks were being tempted to do in hebrews they wanted to go back to the old religious world that they'd grown up in this religious world of judaism and and sometimes religion is easier because it's all kind of boxed in it's nice and black and white and people like rules and regulations everyone likes a rule i was a civil servant for 10 years i like rules and regulations it's kind of in me okay we like that but jesus says, come to trust in me and you're free from all that all that you need to do is love god and love others people like religion and Jesus sets us free from rules and regulations. Actually, Jesus hates religion because religion makes us focus on man-made rules rather than focusing on him. It might be that you you find yourself drawn towards what the church has done throughout most of its history, which is to end up copying Judaism with a kind of Christian veneer. The, The church throughout its 2,000 years of history has sadly often copied Judaism instead of staying focused on Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done. And so it's built sacred buildings with sacred spaces. It's gone back and appointed priests, and it's divided people into clergy and laity and created special ceremonies and all of that kind of stuff. But all of that is complete and utter nonsense and completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. That's just going back to Judaism and putting kind of Christian labels on it, a Christian veneer, because once we trust in Jesus, then we are all priests. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, you are a priest. Jesus is our great high priest, We are now all priests if we've trusted in Jesus. That means we've got instant access 24 hours a day, wherever we are in the world, at any moment, to to God the Father because of Jesus. We can all approach God at any time, anywhere, because Jesus is our great high priest who has given us that permanent access to God every christian believer is equal and he has direct access to god we don't need sacred buildings you don't need to come in here this clearly isn't a sacred place as it as you can sell by looking at it you don't need to come here to pray you can pray anywhere you can approach god at any time we don't need to meet here as a church we can meet in a field in a home wherever we don't need special clothes we don't need special language we don't need anyone or anything other than jesus it's all about jesus and nothing and nobody else matters But Satan will devote his energy to trying to get us to turn away from Jesus and to go back to whatever we used to trust in and what we used to live for. And sometimes, while still trusting in Jesus, we find ourselves, sometimes with a bit of a foot in both camps, trusting in Jesus, but also kind of going back to how we used to live and trying to battle the two together. Satan will draw us and tug us and tempt us to go back, to go back to the old way. And for these Christians in the uh, first century they were being tempted to go back to judaism and the whole point of this chapter seven is is, 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 is the writer is saying look that is pointless jesus (laughs) is superior jesus priesthood is superior what jesus has achieved is just so much superior all of that was just a picture pointing forwards to jesus it's all about jesus everything is about jesus so let's just bow our heads for a few moments and, and ask ourselves that question this morning. What is, the I'm, what is it that I'm tempted to go back to instead of continuing to only trust in Jesus? And for each one of us, that will be completely different things. There's probably nobody in the room who's, who wants to go back to Judaism, because I don't think there's any people here who've been converted from Judaism, but there will be the equivalent of that in all of our own lives. Things that we, were, we are tempted to go back to or to turn to instead of Jesus. What is that What is it that you're tempted, what is it that I'm tempted to go back to instead of continuing to only trust in Jesus? Let's just think about that for a few moments in a quiet moment. you've got that thing in your mind maybe now is a, is a great opportunity just to afresh commit yourself to turning away from that and turning afresh to jesus and just refocusing recommitting yourself to trusting only in jesus and living for him and him alone Well, jesus we love you We thank you that you loved us long before we'd even heard of you. Thank you that you became a man 2,000 years ago and you lived and you died and you paid the sacrifice, you paid the price to free us from our sins, to deal with our sins forever. Thank you that you are not only our great sacrifice, but you are now our priest. You are there representing us before God the Father so that we can come to you at any time. We can come and approach God at at any time, wherever we are, however we are, without fear, without fear, we can just come to you without condemnation knowing that we are accepted if we've trusted in you knowing that we are accepted and loved we praise you for this we thank you that Jesus is our great high priest and Father we thank you for this chapter it's an incredibly difficult chapter to understand Lord we acknowledge that and our brains struggle to get our heads around all that the writer was saying but we thank you for the truths that are in it nonetheless that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek one whose priesthood is so much superior to the old covenant. And this morning we want to afresh, commit ourselves to trusting only in Jesus as our great high priest. Father, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he's done and all that he is and all that he's doing right now representing us before you. We worship you this morning. We give you thanks in his special precious name. Amen. The band are going to come and lead us in our final song, which is in Christ alone. In Christ alone, there's nothing else, there's no one else. It's in Jesus, it's in Christ that we take our stand. Let's let's stand and worship together.